are we in? Let's let's go from now. Hello. Hello. That was a big breath in. That was Hello. like the last oh, God. Fucking noise of again. Oh, here we are again. No, that was um that was a uh, a breath of preparation. Not not exasperation or boredom. A breath, a breath of preparation. Is a breath of preparation. Be someone's uh, autobiography. Mine. Is it yours? Yeah, from when I am like famous. Oh, I feel like it's not that you're not at this level, but like I feel like it's a Dalai Lama book. Oh, okay. Yeah. You know, that level of kind of someone who has spent their life somehow convincing people that they need to teach them how to breathe. Yeah. That breathing in, isn't a thing that humans the trees. do. Yeah, breathe in the trees, but in the correct way. In the correct way, thank yes. you. Yes. Uh, yeah. Shinrin so. yoko, shin shinrin yoko, and special breathing, and uh, I'll be the goddess of that, and then I'll be rich, and then you know, yeah, that's what I'm spending my lockdown doing right now, like planning, planning, breathing, planning my breathing, uh, multi-million pound empire. I see. Well, yeah. it's good to have a project. Yeah. <laughs> Don't waste this opportunity, man. Grab it. Grab it. If there's only um, way I can tag along on your coattails, I'll be very happy. I'm afraid there's no room on my coattails. Oh, no. Yeah, you can. You can do... You can do... <laughs> sniffing. Can I do sniffing? Uh, no, you can do mindful toileting. <laughs> <laughs> I'll do the breathing and you do the uh, evacuation, the bodily evacuation. Uh, yeah, I think mindful. you've... I think you've missed a trick there because I think if I positioned myself as some sort of guru who was advocating for like uh, screen free toilets and like just, you know, use that time, you know, it's, it's built, you know, it's how many, how many minutes a day could you be doing? And everybody takes their phone to the toilet anyway. It's disgusting and germy. Like, I think you've actually given me a better one than breathing. Do you reckon? Yeah, I think, uh... I think, I think it solves more of a problem. Mm, you might be you, right. You may have shot yourself in the foot there. Maybe, yeah. Is it is it raining where you are? Yes. It's raining it's today, or I feel like day. the first time in about two weeks, and it's yes. definitely. Uh, I was talking to said to my wife earlier that like I'd be interested to see how many people's perception of uh, social isolation, social distancing, oh, yeah. changes because we've got rain now forecast for best part of a week. Um, and it's very different being inside, but being able to go for your garden and that your walk for once a day is like a, a very joyous hour out in the countryside. But, um, you know, I think there'll be a lot of people now. Definitely oh, there are. Yeah, but, I've had then I think it from people changed. saying that, saying, you know, oh, this is really, you know, I'm really feeling it today. Um, and I really wanted to go outside anyway. I am. Yeah, the kids woke up really, really early this morning for some reason. And um, I just like opened the door and just stood kind of half in and half out of the house, just like smelling it and, and listening to it. And it was really, really nice. And I was like, I want to go out and play in the rain. But nobody wanted to join me. And I had to look after my kids. So I couldn't. Um, oh, but I really wanted to go out in the woods and be in the rain. Made yeah. me miss work. It really did. Well, I there's two ways of looking at it, isn't there? Because I think for some people... Um, that be, it being rainy would make them more okay about like oh I'm just curling up and watching yeah, TV yeah. And script yeah, you know yeah. that's a more natural thing to do so yeah. you might feel a bit I mean this is I mean we're talking again about the people that aren't working I'm very aware that there are lots yeah, of people yeah. working and 
Uh, but even those people that are working, I think, like, are, you know, it just affects, it affects your mood, doesn't it? The outside yes. weather, definitely. You can kind of kid yourself that you're on some kind of weird holiday, I think, even if you are working at home. I'm just basing this on my other half and his colleagues who I was listening to their um, work meeting today, and this is what they were all saying. Oh, um, have, you, have you heard your um, husband say anything that you realise that he's a different person at work? I saw something uh, about someone saying that they heard their partner say, we'll circle back to that. And she did it. She was like, I don't know who you are. <laughs> who the hell is this? Um, not, not especially, although uh, usually he goes and works downstairs in the living room. And then today he's like, oh, it's all cold and miserable in there. I don't want to. I'll just sit in the rocking chair in the corner of the bedroom. And I sat, the kids were playing amazing games downstairs. And I sat on the bed and just read my book. And he was on this work call. And, um, and then at the end of it, he was like, oh, I felt really self-conscious there. And I really needed to be quite harsh to somebody. And I felt like I couldn't because you would have heard me and you would have been really like, <laughs> upset, like, upset with me. Or, you know, um, so, yeah, you know, someone hadn't done the work they said they were going to do. And he was supposed to give them a bit of a talking to. And he, it just, he said he just couldn't do it because I was listening. And I was like, I wasn't even listening. I was just reading my book. But, yeah, I shamed him into being a nicer person. So that's great. Yeah. Oh, there you go. That's that's another job for you. Just yes. some sort of, I don't know. Although maybe he could just take a picture of you, you know, around. Yeah, that'd be good. Well, from from uh, you reading your book to yeah. the, the, the thing that we're going to talk about in this podcast. Yes. We've both, I listened to it. Did you listen to it? Or did you um, read, did I you read listened it? to the uh, Storytelling Animal book. Yes. Um, but I didn't get all the way through, as I said to you, because then my attention was stolen by another book on a kind of similar theme, also storytelling theme, mm-hmm. uh, called Therapeutic Storytelling. And I've had it for a long time on bookshelf and kind of dipped in and out. But then I thought, now is the time for reading a book about therapeutic storytelling. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have uh, read a fair bit of that. So I thought okay. we could talk about talk about I think both. this I think this might be a first that in I have read a book that you haven't even finished like you normally you are a lot more prepared for the podcast than I am and I you feel ready? like I'm, yeah I think so but today I, I mean saying that I have finished the book uh, yes but again and I haven't finished it a while ago so um I'm gonna pull up I'm gonna Try and find some notes that I wrote. Tell us it. who it's by. Oh and yes, when it was written, if Let's you know that. All of that gubbins. I do. This is the adva- This is one of the advantages of not being in the woods. Is I've got two screens in front of me to look stuff up on yeah. and to see my notes. Whereas when we're in the woods, I cannot be bothered to look things up on my phone. So I just go, oh, it's by some someone or something. Yeah, it's a thing. It is. It is by uh, Jonathan Got G-O-T-T-S-G-O-T-T-S-C-H-A-L. Gotchel. Gotchel. Yeah. Uh, and it's from 2012, uh, but I don't think that it's particularly relevant. When it was written, it's it's a book that's looking at millennia of storytelling. So, um, you know, it's not exactly like it, it's talking about, oh, and the latest prime minister uses storytelling like this. Yeah. You know, it's, it's much more looking at the evolution of, um it's not really I guess it is partly the human brain but it's uh the human brain in a but I would say it's the human brain in a sort of almost not spiritualist 
uh, maybe a more holistic way than because we've we've both read some storytelling books that are kind of like the amygdala kicks in when you experience mm. this feeling and the you know and they're talking about the prefrontal cortex and all this stuff whereas this book is kind of talking a bit more about how it makes you feel or what we're what we experience and and things cultural like that cultural stuff cultural stuff yeah. too which i found quite interesting it does talk quite a lot about um sort of human evolution as well doesn't it mm. it's um talking about why why and how we tell stories um through through over time yeah and and it, it, it's it's reassuring because i don't think anything uh in this book was news to me perhaps um but in in the sense of like oh my god i'd never even considered that but it it was very good in terms of sort of shining a spotlight chapter by chapter on different things and going have you really considered this mm. in this much depth have you really considered this in this much depth um and i think a really good example of that would be um we both made the note that in the in chapter two um he's talking so he's talking about storytelling um this writer but but not not specifically storytelling in terms of stand up with your storytelling hat on and tell a story and not specifically in terms of you know how books are written but he's talking about all story so that's story in tv story when we tell anecdotes stories in terms of like our own memories and how we put all that together um and also and a story in play and so that's right? where i was going so story in yeah. play is is what the chapter two is is focused on um and he has a really interesting i don't know if you would remember the um he's a really interesting sort of look on gender and story yeah i really picked up on that i thought that was really interesting and he talks um about uh vivian gussin gussie play gussin paley which um we did a whole podcast on one of her books didn't we mm. um so uh yeah he talked about her research and how she was um dis kind of disappointed in perhaps the way that she was managing her classroom because uh girls and boys seem to be interacting in very gender based play so the girls would be in the home corner rocking baby dolls to sleep and the boys would be like tearing around being superheroes with guns and stuff and she was like mm, okay this doesn't strike me as as right you know I should do something I should kind of investigate it um I can't remember what she actually did for her, I so, don't know what her so approach was they from from what I remember this is where it becomes interesting because she was saying that on the she swapped the toys and said you know the boys need to play in this area for a bit and the girls need to play yeah. in this area but their their play didn't change. So yeah. the girls had bricks, uh, but they used the bricks to make houses for imaginary yeah. children. And the boys had dolls, but they used them like grenades or um, <laughs> you know they did they did something stereotypical with them. But yeah. what I thought was interesting was that she went on to say that um, sort of boy play in air quotes was. Um, in some ways I kind of got the impression that she found it uncomfortable to watch she didn't like it it's something there's something unpleasant about seeing acts mm -hmm. of war and violence and suffering acted out um and that she was like mm, okay not really okay with that but mm. um but then when she drilled down a little bit into the girls play yes. and I'm using quotes here again yeah that she she then discovered that 
on the surface level, you would go, the boys play is very rough and tumble and misery and war and death. And the girls play is playing houses and doing this. But when she listened and tuned into what the girls were playing, Mm. it was that the dolls didn't have a baby. They didn't have a parent. And so someone had to look after them or the house, you know, the house was going to get, I was going to say foreclosed on because they couldn't pay the mortgage, but that's quite advanced. Um, Yeah. Or someone had like stolen the baby and they needed to get them back. And it was all, yeah. And I love the way that he then kind of extended that um, kind of uh, research and um, uh, observation into uh, observations about story generally, which is that it's Mm. all about trouble. So Mm. human stories are always about some kind of trouble. So even though, yeah, as you say, the girls play looked all very nice and calm and and friendly. There was always some kind of trouble going on, um, whether that be domestic or otherworldly amongst this kind of domestic scene on the surface, there was always trouble brewing um and that our brains sort of have that natural inclination to make stories about trouble and the other bit i found was um interesting was the stuff he was talking about dreams um mm-hmm. and saying about dreaming and um you know all the various research that's been done into the the reason for dreaming but that dreams are always about some kind of trouble that has to be overcome it's some kind of problem that's happened um and that bit about uh, about animals and animals whether animals dream and the guy mm-hmm. in Paris who rounded up loads of um, oh god Pas- Pascal's cats <laughs> what god. an absolute oh. I love human history just because you, anywhere you go into it you yeah. there's stuff because because my view is that human history is a progression of compassion right we've we've started out as like murder death evil monkeys kill the other monkeys and mm. slowly we have developed more and more compassion and empathy have and you read things. Stephen Pinker no. The Better Angels of Our Nature is about that list. No. You'd love it. You should really read it. But but anyway, so this Pascal's Cats guy, can I just explain the story roughly? I want to do. Oh, go on then. Just because I, um, I'm fascinated by the idea of like, but he basically gave cats a lobotomy, didn't he? He like severed the bits of the... He, he but not a good the... lobotomy. Let it oh. Make it clear that he... Yeah, he yeah, said, yeah. They said he rounded up hundreds of cats and he cut random bits out until he found the bit that worked. Yeah. <laughs> so the bit that he was looking for was the bit that... So when we're dreaming, our brains are dreaming so vividly and they've done the you know, brain scans and stuff that they can tell that we are living through the dream as though it were real in our brains. We are kind of reacting in the same ways as if it was real, except that, of course, we don't move when we're sleeping. Mm. It's the part of rolling over and stuff. Yeah, so there's a thing that happens in our brain when we're dreaming which kind of shuts down, um, yeah, the physical movement in response to what's going on. So if you're, in, um, you know, running away, you're not actually pretend running in bed and he speculates or the research you found speculated that it's so that we don't like punch our cave dwelling you know yeah we're an absolute in the head (laughs) while we're asleep so he was looking to cut out that bit of the brain that prevented that from happening so that the cats would move while they were dreaming and so he did that and then he observed them in like a glass box this is right Mm. isn't it and so they've got their eyes open but they're not they're non-responsive to the outside world so they're living in their dream world he was like um waving food in front of them he was flicking his eyes and poking them in the eyes and stuff and they didn't respond they didn't but they would respond to what was uh, what appeared to be imaginary stimulus so they would run away they would cower but for no particular reason um 
And so, so speculate yeah. that's their dreams and that even in cat dreams, it's all about trouble. It's all, all about like, I've got to get the food or I've got to defend my territory. Or I've got to run away or I've got to, you know, it's not just like. I'm yeah, they, in they the didn't sun. ever do it and just I'm, lie there and purr. They, yeah. they were always experiencing some sort of strife. Yes. yes. Um, but there's an interesting bit. Uh, I'm not sure how much further you got after that, where he posits the theory, this author, that... Um, when we are dreaming, our brains are basically doing a defrag of all yes. the information of, of not just, oh, this is what happened to me today, but they're making but your brain is making all kinds of random connections through the day, some of which are relevant and some of which aren't. So like it could be that, you know, you smell bread and you also smelt bread when you were five and your yeah. mum slammed the door. And so your yeah. brain immediately connects them. But then at the end of the day, it has to go, no, 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 and pull them apart. But he's saying that our brains are so hardwired for story and and making sense of the world through story that he posits that that's why we have what you know that that's why dreams seem mental because we because you have a thought about your PE teacher and you have a thought about giving a speech and you have a thought about clothing and your brain can't just have them as abstract you know abstract yeah. thoughts come in your head it has to be well my PE teacher wanted me to give a speech and I had to do it in in stripy purple pats because your brain just can't let them go yeah and well then, like that bit that he says about the um the patients with um kind of medical yeah or like <laughs> medical issues with their brain where they um they did an action like got up and you know turned a buzzer off or got up and picked up a pint of milk or whatever and then he said, why did you do that? And they just straight away came out with a story that was complete rubbish. But they so had that's, to invent that's a story. different that's a different thing he's talking about there. So um, he is talking there about um, literally right brain and left brain and saying, that's right. If you split the brain in half, the right brain can perceive words and knowledge and stuff. So like it can choose an image off a screen. But if you then ask the person why they picked it, mm -hmm. only their left brain can respond verbally. So your left brain will make up a story. Right. So it was like, you know, it was like the right brain could, the right, well, you have to flip it, don't you? So the left eye could see a picture mm -hmm. of a beach and the right eye could see a picture of a school or something. Mm -hmm. um, but then the, the, the right brain picks a, uh, a thing of a, a sandcastle. And then they ask the person, why did you pick a sandcastle? And they, they say something like, when I was at school, we had to build castles as a project. And so I saw the picture of the school and I thought about building a castle. Right. And yeah. they've just, in a split second, have made up this story because, because you can't just go, well, I don't know. I, I, can't, I can't explain that. And he also goes on further and says that that is one of the benefits of now I have to word this very carefully because he does it very carefully I'm going to say it's the benefits of a belief system or a religion in that the world is incredibly scary if you can't connect the dots mm -hmm. so a, any story that connects the dots makes your brain happier mm -hmm. and so I'm trying to say that very delicately um, mm. because I'm not for a second trying to challenge anyone's faith there I'm just saying that is one of the things that people have observed is that when you have a he was interestingly he's talking there's one bit where he's talking about people who read more fiction i can't remember where that is in the book whether you would have got there um and saying that people who read more fiction have stronger 
worldviews on social etiquette. Mm. So he's saying that in the same way that dreams and play are practice at navigating social, socially difficult things, mm-hmm. people who read lots of fiction mm. also have this reinforced thing of, it's basically like, he talks a bit about virtual reality and saying mm-hmm. that stories are the original virtual reality. Now yeah. we've got a pilot in a, um, you don't say, here, go and land this 747. We put them in simulators and we go, right, imagine this goes wrong. Imagine this goes wrong. Ima- well, not even imagine. Yep. You, you put them in a simulator and it goes wrong and they then deal yep. with it. And so he is saying that storytelling is evolutionary, oof, evolutionarily virtual reality because it is all of us trying to prepare ourselves by going yeah imagine a, imagine a creepy old woman in the woods offers you sweets don't right this is you know you you, you need to be prepared but that but her that name is... is Gemma and just avoid her um that's interesting that you say that because um in the introduction to uh the other book that I read um it's introduction by another um author and it talks about a, a piece researcher called Elise Boulding um who suggested that the more vividly that we can imagine our preferred futures the more likely we are to act out and recreate that future so they're kind of describing why um storytelling is so important and it goes, they're taking it a step beyond just reading fiction they are literally talking about like sitting on the lap or at the feet of an adult and as a young person or a child uh, listening to the story with all the intonation and the facial expression and all of those things that help you sort of um, with the meaning um, and the feet and the emotions that you're feeling in your in, inside in response to all of these stimuli um, and exactly as you're describing you know being a practice being um, it's like it's really old isn't it it's, like it's really it's from Aristotle that idea of mm. like uh, being able to uh, kind of ingest a, a story and imagine that you're part of it and to get that that sense of catharsis and all the rest of it um but I really like that as a kind of way of expressing it that the more your uh, imagination is stimulated through fiction or through storytelling then uh your imagination becomes stronger and you're better able to imagine a future that you think is good and the more well, able you are to act upon that I thought that was really so powerful way of saying it there's an, a really interesting book that sort of challenges this it doesn't it doesn't overtly challenge it but at the end of the book it kind of leaves you with some stuff um and it is saying that uh, so it ties into this religion thing and says that um one of the benefits of I'm going to say social storytelling that's not a phrase that's in the book but I think people understand if you say social storytelling or uh, is that social storytelling um, I don't what's know. The, what do what's you the mean? one? What's the one that uh, it's an education thing now? Emotional social social stories. It is social, social stories story. like for autism. Yeah, for all children to go. You know, little Timmy saw a bike that he really wanted, and it wasn't his. Should you know? And he took the bike and blah blah. blah. Anyway, um, so they're talking about that, and they're saying that one of the benefits of that, particularly for humans and working, and that we have the biggest social network, um, is that. In storytelling, if you can impress upon people the same values and expectations, so and that then becomes a culture, doesn't it? You know, you all storytelling, I think, is one of the things that defines a culture is what stories do they tell? Yeah, because he then says that that is a benefit when you are out hunting. Because if I know how you're going to behave mm-hmm. and you know how I'm going to behave, because we've all listened to the same stories and because we've got the same social expectation and I know that you're not going to steal from me because we've both listened to the same thing and all this stuff, 
And he's saying that is really useful um, well, that's the in terms of just getting on. Society, yeah. I mean, yes, I saw, but, I read, but, but, I but, but this on. is, so this is where I want to say that it's challenging at the end is because we have become so culturally connected and mixed now, I think, he doesn't say this in the book, but I think it's one of the, um, a really good advocate and a really good example of why we need stories from other cultures because if you only so if you only listened to stories from the 1500 to 1600 in Great Britain or in you know Europe you would only pick up and develop the values that were important to people in the 15 to 1600s in Europe are you following me on this train of thought whereas yeah. now to culture to culturally understand the people that we meet we need a lot more viewpoints to go okay but you're kind of working from this western point of view where you know just i just, kind of know what you mean i you do know? know what you mean and i appreciate that however i would challenge that by saying that if you're looking at like ancient stories and folk tales so um, I've been reading um, recently a book and I forgot it's, it's something called like the world of fairy tales or whatever but I, I'll have to look up um, who edited it and wrote it and it's got mm. these amazing um, I think he's Czechoslovakian um, illustrations it's like right. it's from the 60s it's incredible um, and it's this collection of folk tales from around the world and um, and you know the kind of uh, catalog logging of world folk tales they mm -hmm. you know the type type b one five six or whatever yeah. um and how ancient some of those tales are hundreds if not thousands of years old and how similar they are so i kind of know what you mean on one level oh, in terms of like yeah, cultural yeah. understanding but on the other thing you could say that actually if you're talking about the bare bones of stories they're and remarkably I, similar the world over, even at times when you think, mm, could that story have actually travelled or has that story actually grown organically in that place on planet yeah. Earth and in this other place on planet well, Earth? Well, I but think the, there's, there's... The bones a... are the same, you know? So there's a kind of human value yeah. there that I think kind of goes beyond culture. And in this um, therapeutic storytelling book, the author is Australian but has spent a lot of time um, travelling and doing research and storytelling all over the world. And um, so she kind of talks about that quite a lot. And quite a lot of the example stories in there are based on stories that she's heard in South Africa or in China or wherever. But they all share these kind of like, I guess you've got a kind of compassionate human mm -hmm. morals. So that sort of transcends local I, culture, I, I would say. I agree. I think, I think what I was talking about was perhaps a more, more niche and a more... Um, uh shallow level you know i i would agree that most storytelling has some kind of idea of if you're nice it'll be nice you know look <laughs> after yourself all those kind of things that are what you know all humans need those things to get by but i wonder it did make me think about so you know sometimes you and i will um you know part of the what we do is that we dig out stories from other places or you know I, I'm quite fond of finding old stories from different places and, you know, culturally, you know, sometimes you and I will go, I've got this really good story. Um, and uh, uh, officially, if you like, in air quotes, it goes like this, you know, the beats are this happens mm -hmm. and this happens and this happens and you go, but that ending isn't right, is it? And what mm. I think you and I mean when we say that is mm. that's culturally not what we want to happen or what mm -hmm. we, so, you know, there's a lot of, um, 
ancient or our story. Group, it's, it's, what our, it's not what our group needs. Yes, yes, yes. That's what I'm. Yes, because you might I mean. think you might go, well, I would tell that story with its correct, with its original ending to a group of adults in a cultural evening in a museum with a glass of wine as a like you know interesting thing. But my group right now in the woods, consisting of these people who are here, they don't need to hear that ending right now. If that's that's going to do kind of more harm than good yeah. that's going to leave a nasty taste or an unsatisfactory ending or even so, just you have sometimes you have characters who you know you and i have, have often picked apart stories and we go there isn't a good enough reason for her to be doing that or yeah. that you know that that seems you know i don't know what you know and sometimes you can play it off when you're storytelling can't you when you can just like jokingly go and of course we all know <laughs> that when someone gives you a fish you bump them on the head and say thank you simon yeah and like yeah stuff like that where you can just play you can sort of yeah. sneak that through yeah but if you break, unpick, break the fourth wall and um yeah but if you um, unpick it you are really going this is not culturally what you want to happen yeah. and i'm acknowledging that and making it funny you know yeah yeah and that's that's one of the the interesting things about storytelling is once you dig into it you really this is why i think i find storytelling so interesting is there is so much there's so much power in storytelling that I think a lot of people miss because they're if you're not in the hippy dippy world that we're in you might view storytelling as holding up the book and reading the words to mm. the group of children or the group yeah. of people or or not even realizing that you're storytelling all the time which is what I liked about yes. the storytelling animal book is that it reminds and this book does the same it sort of um highlights that actually when you are talking to your kids for example about a memory of what you did when you were their age mm. or when you talk about a, a funny thing oh remember when we went to that place and we did that thing and that happened and daddy fell into the pond um that that is that counts as storytelling and even yeah. i saw a thing last night about um about which kind of ties into what you were saying about religion about how capitalism is propped up by stories that we create within our own families for example why does why does bobby get more pocket money than me mummy because he's older um and that being like a story about uh you know authority and mm. bosses and subservience and financial reward for authority the hierarchy. and uh, yeah the hierarchy i had to that just like blew my mind i was like oh my god and so even that kind of counts as storytelling. Like you are, as you say, spreading that kind of cultural you're, idea. You're making sense of the world. Yeah. You're, you're, you're trying to connect two dots that are unrelated. Yeah. One, one is Bobby gets more money. Two is Bobby is older. And you, mm. you're just putting a because in there. And then that immediate, it's like uh, there's, uh, there's, that, there's that experiment, isn't there? And I can't remember what it is. Well, there's two. There's one is where you go... Um, uh, for example, um, a lady ate a sandwich. The man hit his dog. Um, oh, the yes, um, yeah. the umbrella broke, and yes. and immediately you make that into a story because those are yeah. three unrelated sentences. And, and as I was telling you those three sentences, it was really hard for me not to yeah. make the third one contingent. Yeah. I just immediately did it. And then the other one is, um, have you heard? Or I'm sure you have through your drama stuff. Um, there was a very famous sort of study that was done where they had a film of an actor making yes. a completely neutral face. Yeah. And then they showed audiences um, like something. So the film was 
some, so, so like someone being sick and then this neutral actor's face. And it was uh, someone kissing and then this neutral actor's face. And depending on what the film was that preceded it, they perceived exactly the same clip as showing uh, disgust or uh, romance or lust or, you know, it's entirely put on. And I do think that that kind of brings me on to one of the the next note that I have, um, which is I'm sure you have heard of this idea that when we laugh as laughing as an action is a social cue. Right. It, it's it's saying to everyone in the group, I I understand why this is funny. I'm I'm in on the joke, if you like. Mm-hmm. You you with me there? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so there's a part in this book where he's saying that one of the really important bits of storytelling is the communal aspect, because when we all sit around, if I go. So and this happens. And, I, and when he said when I read oh, when I listened to this bit of the book, I went oh my God, I have seen that happen, right? So you're telling a story, and I'm sure most people have done this. You're telling a story and you get to a bit and um, and you go like, you're just playing with the story and you go, uh, and then he pooed right into the monkey's bag, right? <laughs> and you look at someone, right? And you, right, so you've immediately laughed there, okay? Because with it's a, hilarious. With a, with, a snort, with a snort. With a small snort. Yes, right. But you must have experienced the same thing where, like laughing because you get um, that's a bad example because it's laughing again but let's say I go um uh and the old man took that money when the little girl wasn't looking right now you tell that uh, one of our kindergarten days the old man took the bag when the girl wasn't looking one child goes oh what a naughty man and it like a ripple the mm. social expectation moves through the group that they didn't mm. before they you know they might have just gone oh he's taken the bag but because someone goes you you homogenize you you, you communally mm-hmm. are going yeah. don't we all agree that's bad yes we all agree that's mm. bad and you're and so i have always thought about storytelling and thought um one of the reasons that i don't think i can do storytelling well uh through a video or through a podcast or something is because I need to see people's faces to mm. get that feedback back. Yeah, and we've talked about that before. Yeah. But what I and reactions, think... because that will yeah. affect how you then deliver your next line or whether yeah, yeah, you yeah. even say that next line, you know. Absolutely. But what I don't think I'd appreciated before was that all of the listeners at our storytelling sessions in the woods are getting something from each other. It's mm-hmm. not just a one source of this and me delivering it out to all of them that I'm going to pick random names you know that Tommy is getting something because he's listening to how James is reacting and Sarah is getting something because uh James is going to jump at a different bit or yeah and especially in our groups where it's you know never do they all sit in silence and listen unless it's I think of it as more as a pub at pub at yeah and then, a bit rowdy. Yes, and it's not like um, we it's we don't tell a story in the way where no everyone is quiet. Yeah, I am the storyteller. It's more like we're on a kind of even playing field, and especially I was thinking of like our Saturday groups. Um, and you can think of the characters I'm I mean. Oh, I know who you're talking about. <laughs> I feel very comfortable to just <laughs> chuck in, just chuck in an idea or a response or a. Or character. just start being the character to just yeah, get up. Yeah. You say you, you say like he got on his horse, and immediately the, the, that that person has jumped yeah. up next to you and is now pretending to ride a horse and you're like well, okay. and delivering probably quite a funny and spot on line in role as the character as well yes. just to add to give a bit of dialogue and a bit of flavor um so yeah of course they are and like when we know 
I mean, we know instinctively that storytelling um, in Forest School helps kind of bond that group together. And, um, you know, especially with perhaps a new group that don't know each other particularly well or don't know you particularly well. Um, and a new to Forest School, I've definitely found that with groups in schools, for example. Like I, I don't I genuinely do not think I could have run the groups that I did in schools without storytelling. And as soon as I kind of hit on how important that was, I think I maybe ran one or two sessions right at the beginning without it. Or mm. it was a bit more of an afterthought. Like it was like, oh, we'll just do that at the end and just take 10 minutes. Or sometimes and you just see I... it as a way in. You just see it as a like, oh, I'll tell that story because then they'll be interested in den building. Or I'll yeah. tell that story, you know, rather than seeing it as a valuable activity. Yeah. And, um, and then you realise what a profound effect it has on the kind of, yeah, the bonds between the group members and between you and, between, and the place as well. So especially if you start involving, um, you know, elements of the of the place where you are so oh at the moment we're this is happening in nature or this has happened recently so I'm going to tell a story about birds or I'm going to you know there's been a lot of rain so I'm going to tell a story about that or whatever um which I think we often do don't we we try and always it's the stories that we pick aren't random they're there sort of for a reason um but I'm yeah I'm really interested in that kind of working out the sort of science really about why it is a bonding experience because it is instinct we, we know it is and that's our instinct that it is. But I'm, I'm kind of interested well, in I the guess comments you're making uh, about. Uh, again, it, it does, doesn't it? it? It tells you so much about a group dynamic that it might take you a really long time to get otherwise. Mm. Whereas um, if I think about going into a school and doing some storytelling, I have equally, I've done some storytelling with groups, but I've done it, say, two or three weeks in or four weeks in even. Um, and then have kicked myself for going, God, why didn't I do this at the start? Because if mm. I'd done this at the start and you could almost create a story that was almost like a questionnaire, but not a questionnaire, like a bit where you'd go, OK, there's a bit of immature humour in my story. There's also a bit of peril in my story. There's also a bit of this in my story. And then you could watch it and you could go, OK, poo jokes don't work with you guys. Mm-hmm. But uh, there's a group of children over here who are very scared when I talked about the dragon. So maybe there's something there to be thinking about. Mm. There's some boys here who immediately wanted to get up and be the soldiers when the soldiers were in the story. So I think there's something there. In it. Do you know what I mean? Mm. You could you could get a group from week one and go, right, just going to tell you the like the story. I'm going to gauge your reactions from it. And from there, I will know what's going on. You know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, can I talk about, uh, he talks about, I can't remember the official name, not the official name. He talks in the book about, uh, it's called like paper characters or like ink, ink people. Ink people, yeah. Ink people, which I absolutely loved. So ink people, he's talking about uh, characters that do not exist and narratives that never happened, but their impact on the world is measurable mm-hmm. does that make sense yeah did you did you did you get this i can't remember i did but you'll have to remind me okay i, I remember so i'm gonna call, i'm gonna talk through three examples which i think are all really interesting so the first one is the american civil war there were two books and i cannot remember the name of them now which is awful but um essentially they were books written in the north of america which um portrayed a very brutal slave, uh, yes. slave master. Uncle Tom's Cabin. Uncle yes. Tom's Cabin, yes, well yes. remembered. Um, 
And yes, amazing. Uh, yes. So, you know, say, you know, really uh, egging on this character that the slave owner was this horrible person and uh, that the freedom of this person was absolutely important and paramount, which is not a story that happened. Um, I mean, it was a story that happened. Obviously, lots of people went through that, but that particular story wasn't true. Yeah, Eliza, Eliza escaping, um, yes. escaping, being a slave. Now, now they then talk about this. This was something like one of the best-selling books at the time in Britain, and Britain's uh, interests at the time were heavily linked with the slave trade and cotton and everything yep. that was going on in the south of America. Um, but they can attribute an amount of public opinion that was moved by this book mm. that then meant that Britain didn't enter the American Civil War. Yeah. Because they because they then were, you know, were transformed by, well, we can't be on the side of that horrible slave owner. We yeah. as a country will stay out. And, it, you know, it plays out the south of America loses the war. Mm. They, you know, the north carries on and all this stuff. And Britain because they didn't step in, has an effect. It's a story that didn't happen. Alexander the Great, do you, do you remember this bit? No. Uh, I love Alexander the Great. He is one of the most mental people in the world. Um, he was told his entire life that he was actually a demigod, that he right. that, that his, his mum was born of, like, the line of Perseus and that his dad was, I think I'm getting this right, was, like, uh, so his mum's family descended from Perseus and his dad's family descended from Hercules. Mm-hmm. And he is spent literally his entire life with his mum telling him that that is actually true. That that is not a, wouldn't it be nice, that he grows up with that story being his reality. Yeah. And it's only because of that that he goes off, conquers the known world, eventually drinks himself into a paranoid stupor and is poisoned. Mm-hmm. But again, shapes the world. Last one. Apparently Hitler, when he was a child, was essentially babysat by the Wagner family. Did you get this mm-hmm. bit? I didn't hear that he was babysat. I heard that he went to this concert and had this amazing revelation. He went to a Wagner um, concert. Oh, I think some... they were family friends. Oh, right. At least they were. Uh, yeah. But anyway, okay. that, that, that there is, you know, this story about the wolf of Germany and that the wolf will bring this back. And um, they said that, you know, Hitler was obviously very into his art and he believed that he was the wolf of Germany and that he was going to bring this all back. And um, sorry, just as a side note from my music degree, did you know that there was, you know, Wagner's ring cycle? Yeah. So did you know that there was a plan to demolish, I think it's half of Berlin in order to build one concert theatre with a massive estate grounds because Wagner had such massive ideas that he was like, to put my play on properly, it needs gardens and carriages and walkways and everything else. And Hitler was apparently on board with it. With like, that's how important they thought Wagner's work was. Yeah, I don't know much about Wagner apart from, um, have you watched Curb Your Enthusiasm? I haven't, no. It's very, very funny. Um, uh, Larry David um, is obviously Jewish and it's, it's all about like really icky social situations so it's a mockumentary like following him about and mm. his little kind of um, stupid arguments with his friends and so on and one of them is all about 
is all about Wagner and should he or should he not like go to a Wagner concert because he's Jewish and you know Wagner is like the ultimate symbol of uh, yeah Wagner is it? yeah 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 it's um I mean that's an interesting that's a side topic isn't it can you separate yeah. an author from their views yeah, from their yeah, work yeah. and that's maybe not something to be doing with limited time left yeah. in a podcast I think um, I think I've got that wrong anyway I think it's more like he's judging somebody because I can't remember someone's listening to Wagner and they're trying to work out if that means there's something like that um Stephen Fry has said on many interviews that he is conflicted because um uh because of Wagner's views but he finds Wagner's music to be the most beautiful music in the world Mm. and he struggles then because uh, you know, uh, Stephen Fry's family are, I think I'm right in saying, Hungarian to some extent. Um, and so, and, you know, Stephen Fry is openly gay and he's kind of like, uh, you know, this person would have persecuted me doubly mm-hmm. so and would have mm-hmm. hated me and would have seen me as the absolute scum of the earth. But I love his music. Mm-hmm. So can I listen to, you know, it's very interesting, isn't it? But yeah. but the point that we're t- talking about storytelling is, is this idea that, a, a story can have real world implications and I think not to, to scale it back because I gave three examples there from the book which are quite um ooh, quite epic in proportions but yeah. that's because you want epic proportion ones but if you scale it down and I think about how many children have we influenced their lives with a with a story yeah you know, I know. And, yeah and how many of us and, and not even like a story of like I, do you know what I really am? I really do believe I am Peter in Peter and the Wolf. I really believe I am um, Hercules or whatever. But just in terms of, you know, every time you tell a story, you're embedding, you're imparting some sort of social expectation and narrative. Absolutely. And that is exactly what the book that I've read is about. Okay. That okay. is exactly what it's about. So, it, it you know, first of all, it begins, it's, um, yeah, called Therapeutic Storytelling by Susan Perrow. And it starts off by just making the case like we've um, been speaking about, about how important storytelling is and story in general. Um, and then it talks about how stories affect us. And in this particular book, um, so she's written a previous um, book called Healing Stories for Challenging Behaviour. Oh, I have that book. I okay. didn't realise it was the same person. There you go. Um, so... Uh, she is specifically talking about how stories can change us and mm-hmm. uh, in this book uh, how they can heal us so she's talking about um how that effect kind of happens um but also about how you might go about writing a story for a child or a person um for whom something is out of balance mm-hmm. and i really like the way that she uses that phrase so she's not talking about like um you've got a child presenting naughty behavior and you need to change their naughty behavior by giving them like a good moralizing tale to like change them and label their behavior as naughty and make them realize that that she's like that is absolutely not about that but it is about recognizing that for this child something is out of balance uh, whether that be um that they are being really aggressive in their play and hurting their their peers or um that they're very shy and introverted and just won't take part in any play or um they're having a really hard time at home because their parents are separating um and you know any of these kind of like real world social problems that can happen for children Mm -hmm. um and how you might then uh take that thing that's out of balance and create a story for them using metaphor and she talks quite a lot about uh metaphor in general and how it's basically been the kind of like um key 
it's played this you know huge role in human culture which is very similar to um what you've been talking about with the other book mm-hmm. um and so take this really powerful kind of tool of metaphor and create this story for this child which has a kind of resolution and doesn't necessarily go and then the you know so for example mm. she gives the example of a, a child who is like really aggressive and rough in their play and hurt other children um which was not good for anybody obviously not good for the other children not good for the child who's doing it because he then became kind of excluded and isolated yeah. and she gives this um example where she's like well you know traditionally in school a teacher might get all the children on the mat and go you know hurting our friends is wrong if we hit our friends if we hit our friends they won't be our friends anymore and then we'll be really lonely and that's really horrible and then you'll die alone so we don't do that yeah so she says well that you know that approach a isn't you know it's not going to capture anyone's imagination it's just going to you know invite interruptions of like yeah well so and so does that all the time yeah they do actually well how about when blah 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 blah?" you know she's like that's not that's not the right way to go about it it's shaming the children that are doing it it's um, moralizing it's preaching it's lecturing um where she gives an example of a child who was presenting this behavior and she created a therapeutic story for him um about an elephant um, and an elephant's uh, trunk being like really, really strong, and this young elephant uh, called Tembo like playing with his trunk, and but all of his uh, other young elephants being scared of him because he was just like bashing and thrashing stuff with his strong trunk all the time, and they were really scared. So he was like knocking down trees and smacking them and all the rest of it through his kind of rough play with his strong trunk. Um, and then um, as the story goes along, something like Tembo falls down a hole or something, and then the grandmother elephant calls all the other elephants to help and with their strong trunks they pull him out of the hole and he's safe and he gets to play with his friends so through that example of that story she's saying you're not kind of going you're not kind of taking their behavior and making it right and therefore going and therefore that's what you should do but through metaphor it's showing you um we can use our strength to hurt or we can use our strength to help and so the elephants later on in the story use their strength to help and so that's just an, it's just offering an alternative you might it think, occurs to me go on sorry you might you, you know so and she she's pretty confident that through this kind of methodology and this approach that it does profoundly change children's behavior maybe not immediately but has some kind of like deep kind of um intrinsic um effect on on children so rather than going oh i've stopped doing that behavior because so and so told me to do it that this metaphor kind of gets into your soul almost and has this kind of healing effect to put things to restore balance um mm. and it's quite interesting and and she's very good at like as you're reading it you're kind of going mm, that sounds kind of manipulative and then the next paragraph she's like this is absolutely not manipulative this is not what i mean like this is an example of what would be manipulative um and what my approach right. isn't that and you know and don't suggest like fairy tale happy ever after endings don't you know she kind of gives you the sense that you are you have this amazing responsibility as a storyteller you've got this captive audience hopefully um and your stories have a profound uh, you know potential for affecting the listeners and so it's you know you've got to be really careful especially if you're writing stories for particular children um or groups that you don't go and then the parents got back together and the couple yeah. were after yeah. and, that was, and it was all fine you know it's all about being being real um and, mm-hmm. but but that the endings should always be like fair and just so we have that responsibility so she says she talks this is you know you mentioned in our when we were talking about this podcast in advance you were saying about um 
maybe there's another chance for us to have another talk about like choosing stories for yeah, how do and, how do we pick our stories yeah and so she kind of talks about like picking um themes and and sort of story journeys for different ages of children um uh, but she's very clear she's like we shouldn't shy away from strong stories you know we, a good story is going to have at some um part you know that battle between good or evil good and evil or that really difficult choice or that big problem to overcome and we shouldn't shy away from those but since we're working with children it's our job to kind of make sure that the endings restore balance are fair are just and are positive because mm. they're so powerful that you know she, and she gives lots of lots of little anecdotes of um either parents or um teachers or um these like amazing kind of mental figures who are working with really deprived children in south africa um, and she gives lots of examples of people who've got it wrong, who've come to her and said, oh, you know, my child, like I really needed some time one to one with my husband and my and I really wanted my daughter to go and watch telly um, just so that I could have this. I really needed some one to one time with my husband. And so I sent her off to watch telly and she came in and she said the, the telly was scary. And I saw a bear on her T-shirt and I said, well, you know what, that bear and your T-shirt that has it will protect you. It's an it's a magic bear and it'll protect you, so um. it stops things being scary. Go back and watch telly, and then the girl came back and went, the bear isn't working. You know, she's like, that is an absolute like that is not what yeah. that is what not to do. You know, you're not kind of, um, yeah, dismissing children's fears or um, this kind of thing. So she she gives lots of examples like that throughout where people have tried it and they've missed the can point. I can I posit something that is just because it's fresh in my mind and as, as mm. you were describing that I wondered so um I have been listening to it's it's very secondhand but I was talking to you about it before that I've been listening to a podcast talking about a book and now I'm on a podcast talking about a book talking about a podcast <laughs> talking about a book. anyway Meta. yeah Okay, so the book is called The Geography of Thought, How Asians and Westerners Think Differently and Why. It's a very interesting book. But it touches on storytelling in a way that I think is relevant here because um, in terms of storytelling and retelling, it uh, it is more common in Asian culture at multiple levels. So if you ask somebody, if according to this book, if you ask somebody about an embarrassing incident, uh, a Westerner is more likely to retell the story as I was walking along and I tripped over and then all the people laughed at me. Mm -hmm. Right. And they're saying that it's a much more common Asian way to, w would be to say they saw me walking along and then they saw me fall down and then they saw me, they 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 thought that that was funny. The whole story is told from as many perspectives as, as you can get and equally they were saying that if you ask a westerner a western child about their birthday party or even just western adults i think it was they describe a sequence and events and actions that they did on their birthday mm -hmm. if you ask someone from an asian culture they're more likely to say well i was having a cake nanny and grand nanny and granddad were in the kitchen and they were talking about this mm -hmm. and and mummy and they were talking about this in this whole they would talk about it in a whole three-dimensional way. And Asian storytelling follows that idea that perhaps, I'm going to really tread lightly here, that perhaps they have a deeper requirement for empathy because mm -hmm. of the, because, so he puts it down partly to this idea that the way crops are harvested. So in, in 
Western cultures and particularly ancient Greek, you can afford to be a loner because you make your money on your farm and you make your money by trading goods and whatever. So if you disagree with someone, great, you will go home and you make your money, they make their money, doesn't matter. But because of the way rice is harvested, everyone needs to knit together. There isn't room to disagree. Um, So that then follows into storytelling needs to impart into the culture this strong idea of empathy and that Mm. you are not the main character in this story. There are other viewpoints. There are other parts. So what I was wondering... Do you know the word um, solipsistic? It's one of my favourite words. The opposite. We're solipsistic. Yeah, go on. So what I was wondering was, it would be very interesting to know, anybody that's worked in um, Asian cultures or or with... um, I say Asian cultures because that's geographically, they could be wherever. Mm. Um, But whether this idea of social stories needs, it it has the same weight with those children and those learners, because as you were describing that story about the elephant, it was all from the elephant's viewpoint, wasn't it? And and like we were saying that you know no it isn't actually well but 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 the idea being that it, it we're supposed to empathise and imagine that we are the elephant and that we that we have been doing you know we have been bashing everyone with our trunks and everyone else is going to help us whereas I wonder if an Asian way of telling a story would would have automatically included uh, you know other children being hurt and other children were sad. They were sad because they saw this well, big elephant hitting them with yeah, their trunks. I think they... that's probably the way that I'm kind of retelling it. Um... Oh, but that, but I just I just positing it as a as a thought mm. and as a kind of like, you know, the the idea of social storytelling is almost a an inversion of Western storytelling because it is saying, think about other people, you absolute narcissist. Um, and I wonder if if you have a storytelling culture that emphasizes you know multiple perspectives on an event do you do you ever need that or you know do you know what i mean mm. it's just an interesting way of i wonder if that about. i wonder if that is true of like just the way that it's told so like the authorial voice or whether that is the content as well do you know what i mean i'd be interested to know that so our western story is more about an individual and their quest or their goal and our asian story is more about a community or a group of people um do you know what i mean i think it's it's much more common in a in an a in a western story i think it's much more common to have lots of insight into one character's mind and even a story told in the third person um you don't get as much depth into the secondary characters emotions you get it you get it through inference don't you you get it yeah. through um they say in my head i'm thinking about the harry potter books and i'm thinking do you ever get as much insight into say ron and hermione's minds as you do into harry's and you definitely yeah. don't so i wonder if an asian way of story, tell, telling stories would have all three of those perspectives but then so that's i wonder if that's what makes i'm just going off on a little like world of my own now because so if you uh you haven't read game of thrones have you the the no. song of ice and fire so they're really interesting books because geographically so each chapter is told from the first person but it's told by the first person of a different character mm-hmm. so there are i mean there's about three thousand characters in it but there's probably about 20 characters 
that we see inside their heads. And so for this entire chapter, we only see it through Tyrion's head and we only know what he knows. And then and then in the next chapter, we're only seeing it through uh, Joffrey's viewpoint there's an amazing book by jonathan franson called the corrections which is kind of like in terms of um uh it's setting basically opposite of game of thrones it's really domestic and it's about a, a family in america with is it hyper realism it basically is it's uh, but it's the same format so each chapter is told from the perspective of one of the characters and um and so only at the end when you get all of the characters perspectives on this particular time um do you get it you know because all the pieces slot together and it's and it's just the story of, oh my of God. being What's alive the... and being part of a family but it's devastating it's absolutely devastating what is uh so this is bringing up a horrible memory of gcse english for me and you might have done this as an english teacher the play an inspector calls oh god yeah it is the most heavy-handed yeah. like yeah. so for people who are fortunate enough to have not read it basically like someone is murdered and an inspector brings them into a brings his family he's like oh so you're all suspected of murder blah, blah blah and he interviews them one by one and it turns out that like they all think they murdered him and it's like but they don't realize it because they tell their story one person at a time so it's like oh, i fired him and i fired him in a really mean way and then the next person's like i saw him on the road and i didn't help and blah blah, blah. and then yeah they're like in a way aren't you all the murderer mm, and yeah. then i think i'm remembering this right that at the end he goes like aren't you all the murderer and he leaves and then there's a knock at the door and he goes like and someone a new character goes hello i'm the inspector i'm here to conduct mm. the investigation and they're like then who was that other guy what a crazy yeah. world isn't the play crazy like yeah it's the most like by the time you get to the end of the book, you're just like, I hate this. I hate yeah. this so much. It's interesting that you bring up GCSE English because I was going to bring it up earlier when you were talking about um, kind of stories, the, the ink people thing and uh, the ability of stories to, you know, change your worldview and open your eyes to certain things. And um, and for two reasons. So that thing is about well, like stories from other cultures. So um, I don't know if when you were at school, you had to study the anthology of like poems from other cultures. Do you remember that? Um, I don't remember I was, doing it. If I, I did, apologise to my it. teachers. Um, but there was like, you know, it was basically like that labelling of cultures as other. So a lot of these poets that we were studying lived in Britain, <laughs> you know, but their names were Imtiaz Darker. Yes, or whatever. sorry, I did. Yeah? Yeah, yeah. Is that did it have a book? Did it have a poem about being half cast? Yes, yes, yes. I remember that. John John Agard. I went to see him in Bristol. Amazing. I went to see. Yeah, it was really cool. Yeah. So um, so I think they did. I think they did change it to like different cultures, or maybe it's the other way around. Anyway, it was just like oh, so heavy handed and clunky. Um, but of mice and men, did you do that? Did yeah. you do my so yeah. that's off the curriculum now. That's a govism of like, chuck that out. We need some more dead white British male authors. We need more Dickens and chuck out. We haven't got time <laughs> for of mice and men. Of course, schools can teach what they like. You can choose to teach of mice and men, except you flipping can't because there's not a minute, there's not a second of time left in your schedule when you're designing your schemes of work to fit in anything that isn't on the bloody list to, to prep them for the exam so it's out um but that You're was right. one of those yeah sorry this is why this you know i told you that my old boss um in my leaving speech was like yeah. 
yeah, Gemma's leaving. Uh, if you want to see her get really angry, just talk to her about education. It's hilarious. Okay, bye, Gemma. Um, yeah, so I'm getting I mean, back into you my say old that, world. But we we have legitimately like made uh, <laughs> a small form of entertainment where I I sort of poke you about education. So in some ways, your old head was right. Yeah, she is. It's um, entertaining. But yeah, of mice and men was one of those was one of those stories that. I every time I taught it, I bloody loved it because you I just really find yeah. oh you just find these, like it was absolutely perfectly pitched for that age group I think and it challenged so many of their pre-held beliefs and ideas and made them empathise with characters that they wouldn't have and there was just so much room for discussion in there in terms of gender race class like it was just magical for that reason you know for that kind of potential to to yeah. change change minds i was like yeah. god that's the worst thing when it was dropped i was like oh everyone well, should read it we have gone <laughs> over the hour mark i think it would be a prudent thing to not prudent i think it'd be really entertaining if if people are in our facebook group or are um, want to get in touch with us it'd be really interesting to know if you can pinpoint one or more stories that have been pivotal to you and it doesn't have to be like oh this is a story i tell at forest school it can be you know war and peace like that's absolutely fine um but it would be interesting to know because i wonder if there's some correlation between all people who are into forest school alternative education and listening to two nut jobs talk mm. on a podcast and whether we all have something you go ah oh, all of these books you know we all we're all convinced that we're getting that hogwarts letter that is yeah well there was a thing on facebook among the groups the other day um where somebody put a picture up from a children's picture book of i don't know if you saw this of like a tree but uh the side facing us carved away and you can see inside the tree all these like rooms and staircases and stuff did you see this Mm, i don't and it was um and everyone just went wow and like some people like the magical faraway tree and the people who knew were like no man it's brambly hedge like so many people were like oh brambly hedge brambly hedge oh yeah it's a, do you know what brambly hedge is no it's little mice it's like little um oh, mice okay in sort of victorian age kind of clothes um but all of the kind of uh it's a bit um, like sylvanian families but yes was a, yeah, well, yeah yeah jill barkland wrote them and she spent ages researching for each book so every there's all the you know all the wildflowers that are sketched are all they're all real they're all out at the right times do you know what i mean they're all yeah. kind of accurate um and they the mice like you know collect seeds and store them away and eat them all this kind of stuff um and there were a couple of people commenting on there saying that they really think that reading those books as a child inspired their love of nature and therefore led them down the path that they're now on oh yeah a hundred percent i just uh i am going to send you on uh skype a can you see that can you see our chat oh can i see our chat um i've just no i can't oh i'm gonna send you a picture of oh yes oh yeah okie doke yeah so again okie doke pivotal for me makes complete sense now if i think about it yeah like that is everything i want to be but (laughs) (laughs) when you get a friendly hand you need a helping hand ring the door anyway that's enough um, can i also talk about another thing that another theme i want to do um on the pod 
pretty soon because it's kind mm. of timely and I would love to get some listener input on this. Um, okay. I want to talk about what children are learning during this time of lockdown that is self-initiated. So I'm not talking about mm. stuff that schools have sent you or nurseries have sent or whatever. Um, and how or that you have profits to your children. No, I'm talking about stuff that you have observed, probably if you're like a an interested parent carer or forest school practitioner, you kind of have that, you've got your eye in for noticing learning that's happening. Do you know what my three-year-old is learning? No. He is, he is he is learning. It, no, no, it's great. He is learning exactly how much patience I have for mundane <laughs> questions. <laughs> <laughs> He's getting. <laughs> anyway, <Why? laughs> which no, it's which which one is it? Which one? Mm. Which one? I'm going to go and move the car. Which one? My car. Which is your car? <laughs> you know which car mine is. <laughs> You've no ways. It's raining outside. Which one? That doesn't make sense, son. Anyway, no. So before... have you have you worked out what he means when he's saying which one? Though? Yes. What he means is more information, please. Yeah, yeah. So I, you know, I'm tuned in, and it, it it it's still difficult to interpret that way because he does ask other questions as well, but it, and also because he sometimes shortens it to just what. And he sometimes arrives in a room where you're midway through a task and just looks at you and goes, "What?" And you're like. Yeah, tell what me, tell mean? me more. My little boy, me? my little boy said um, one of his first kind of utterances was "da da da," which me, which meant "what is that?" or "tell me more about it." What's going on? What's happening? Da da da. Often accompanied by like a, a point at the thing that he wanted to know more about, mm-hmm. um, but sometimes not. And um, and it was so effective for him that when he could speak absolutely perfectly in like very long complex sentences he would still sometimes just go <laughs> so it was really um it was interesting that he just like kept that as a little shorthand just you know what that means it works really well every time I say da 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 it's very little effort for a lot of reward so I'm going to carry it on uh, yeah so, so I want to know yes. what children are learning that you have noticed because you've got your eye in listener yeah mm-hmm. um you may even still be working in a setting but you are just observing children i've heard from people who are still working um in obviously strange situations with fewer children than normal um, vulnerable children children of key workers etc um but i have heard tell this may not be true of all settings or most settings but i've heard tell that um they are a lot less structured, a lot more play-based. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> Obviously, you're trying to do a bit of social distancing if possible, but hard with children. Um, so, therefore, perhaps you have a bit more time uh, amongst all of your hard work and anxiety. So maybe not. I don't know. But maybe you've got more time to observe what they bring. You know, maybe mm. they're in mixed age groups where they weren't before. Um, so what are you what are you noticing that your kids are learning by themselves? And last thing, very last thing before we go, is we need to say thank you to Charlie. Charlie Crump. Because Charlie is our first Patreon supporter, which means Woo! Charlie is giving us loads. Not like the rest of you freeloaders listening to us talk about nothing. How dare you? Charlie, we're just going to talk to you now forever. And shush everyone else, we you're not allowed you, to listen. Charlie. Oh, thank you, Charlie. Yeah, thank you, Charlie. If you don't give us more money, Gemma's going to keep singing. <laughs> Send more money. Alice, I want to donate money to the Forest School podcast. How could I do that? 
Oh, it's, it's, yeah, it's always on the uh, on the podcast. Tell me now. Tell me now in your own words because Patreon.com wasn't working. Ah. Patreon.com yeah. and then what forward slash Children of the Forest. Yeah, and then uh, you can subscribe, and it's uh, uh, it's not. I think the lowest the lowest you can give, which is absolutely fine, is uh, I'm typing it in. Is one pound fifty a month? If you oh. if you feel like Gemma and I are worth one pound fifty a month, not we, even the price of a pre-lockdown cup of coffee. Cheaper than that. People have turned off now. People have people have gone. Ah, oh, this is the bit, the cringy bit where they ask for money and they've turned it off. Well, good. 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 Anyway. <laughs> if you like this you podcast, guys. <laughs> You can donate Perfect, that's how we get more listeners. Okay, I'm going to leave it there. I'm going to go make pizza. Bye, Bye Gemma. Show Bye. your support for the Forest School podcast.